take a deep breath and remember there's a power breathing you. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation, and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. Back when I first became a Kundalini Yoga teacher, I applied for a spiritual name from the 3HO organization, the Happy, Healthy, Holy Organization, 3HO, founded by Yogi Bhajan, the master who brought Kundalini Yoga to the West to train teachers of the spiritual technology in preparation for the Aquarian Age. Yogi Bhajan always said, I'm not here to collect disciples. I'm here to train teachers. He was preparing the world for 2012, for the birth of the Aquarian Age. He knew that a technology like Kundalini Yoga would be of great, great use to humanity uh, as the change of the ages occurred. And he would often gift his students with spiritual names, and eventually he trained a team of people in the art and science of spiritual naming. Spiritual naming has a long tradition in ancient cultures where historically you received your spiritual name from a holy person of that tradition, whatever it was. In Kundalini Yoga, spiritual names usually have Sanskrit or Gurbani origins and are based on your numerology. A spiritual name is like a guide in the awakening of consciousness, which affirms your spiritual destiny and and elevates your spirit. It's an expression of your particular way to enlightenment in this lifetime. Whether or not you were ever to activate that potential, it's still there. And the spiritual name is the vibration that helps you along your way. So beyond the meaning of the name itself and the vision of your spiritual identity, it provides this vibration which impacts you when you or others speak or call you by your name and when you meditate on it. The mantric sounds of your spiritual name have an effect on the energy meridians and can actually influence and upgrade brain activity. My own experience of embracing my spiritual name bears out the subtle effects that it has on consciousness. I've experienced this for myself and it is subtle, but it is very powerful. (laughs) But that was a more recent development I had my spiritual name for years before I understood anything about it. I didn't feel any particular resonance with it when I first received it, and I felt awkward about using it, even if only in yoga settings. It felt fake, or like I was being fake or pseudo-spiritual, asking people to call me by it, even though many people in my years of training used their spiritual names, and I didn't even know what their given name was. And I used other people's spiritual names respectfully to refer to them. I I never adopted my own. To be honest, pronouncing it even to myself 
immediately brought up the internalized image of my family and imagining their reaction to it made me cringe just a little bit inwardly and roll my eyes at myself, which is what I assumed, rightly or wrongly, that their reaction would be. One day on the table during a healing session, one of my mentors, she of the aforementioned hair story, asked me, do you have a spiritual name? And I confessed that I did, yes, and I spoke it. Why you never use it? She prodded me. I don't know. I searched for a reason, but I couldn't find a good one. (laughs) I guess I just don't really feel connected to it, I said. She advised me to just take it on, start using it, and see what develops. So I did, sort of. I started signing all my email correspondence that I had with my teacher and other members of the teaching team with that name. At the time, I was working on writing a manual with my teacher, and there was a lot of back and forth on email with him and other members of the team, so I would sign my spiritual name along with my given name in all my emails and correspondence. Nobody asked me about it, and no one started calling me by it. But then I hadn't formally taken it on or told anyone to call me by it. I took this as a sign that since it didn't really stick, I didn't have to use it. My own name was fine, I said to myself. I liked it. I have a connection to my, I love my name. And it's true, I do love my given name. But I felt a secret resistance, that's the truth, a secret resistance to not being called by my given name, actually. I was identified with it. So I told myself that must mean something, after all, My own name was kind of a spiritual name already, wasn't it? I mentioned this once in passing to my teacher. Well, he confirmed. Claire is kind of a spiritual name, isn't it? It means light. It means bright, clear, transparent. He shrugged and moved on. So I did too, taking his words as approval of my original name (laughs) and kind of forgetting about the other one. And besides, I justified, he hadn't given me that spiritual name. My teacher would gift them to students who asked for them, and I always felt a little pang of envy that they had received a spiritual name from him and I hadn't. After all, mine had come from someone I didn't know who didn't know me. So maybe it wasn't the right spiritual name. Doubt crept in. Maybe I should ask my teacher for another one, like... Maybe the first one was defective, and that's why I didn't feel a connection with it. So, (laughs) what is my spiritual name? You may be wondering by now. Occasionally, I would go back to the original email I had received from the 3HO spiritual naming team years before. It read, Dear Sister in Divine, Your request for a spiritual name has been gratefully received. You have been blessed to live as Sukhbir Kaur, the fearless princess whose divine consciousness is filled with peace. Sukh means one who is filled with peace. Bir is brave, fearless. Kaur is a name that all women receive, the princess or lioness of God who walks with grace and strength throughout her life. Yogi Bhajan taught that every woman has the potential to attain this divine state, and he encouraged all to manifest it. The name Sukhbirkar helps you to connect with your soul by opening to that place where peace always exists and by sharing this quality with others. 
your courage will guide you in experiencing this divine state of consciousness. Be who you are. God will cover you. The power of your spiritual name is that the more you speak it and hear it, the more it permeates your being, opening you to experience its nod, universal inner sound current. Consciously merge with the vibration of the nod to come into harmony with your highest destiny. May God's guidance bless you with everything you need to reach your highest destiny. May God bless you and guide you now and forever in the name of the cosmos, which prevails through every body and the holy nom, which holds the world. I can hardly read that letter now without bursting into tears. <laughs> so it seems amazing that when I first received that name, I was like, meh, okay. <laughs> I, I accepted it. Cool. I don't know what I was expecting, some kind of revelation about myself, some kind of magic wand that would instantly change me. But you know what? It seemed to me a little boring. Peace, serenity, kind of vague. Courage, okay. I treated it like a fortune cookie. Oh, that's nice. Took a couple of bites, left the rest, and forgot the fortune in a jacket pocket to be rediscovered years later. <laughs> I had never considered the profundity of it. I gave it a kind of cursory attention. This is how it is when you have no true connection with your own sacredness. I still had a lot of shame and unconscious guilt. The name felt awkward and it was a challenge to the ego and the shadow aspects of the personal self. It seemed to point the finger at what I was not, not peaceful and not brave in the truest sense of the word. Somewhere inside, I felt that, but I could act it. I could act as if, yeah, I thought people have always told me I have a peaceful quality that fits hmm. and I'm courageous. I've bungee jumped. <laughs> Uh, the ego took the spiritual name on to boost its self-image. That was as far as it went at the time. I mean, that was my understanding and that was my level of uh, depth with myself. I had no idea what true courage was, what it was to be truly fearless. I had no idea what peace really was, the peace that passes all understanding. So those were superficial characteristics that could be played at and projected as part of the persona. Do you remember that scene in Schindler's List where, I forget the name of the character, but it's uh, Ray Fiennes who plays this uh, terrifying, absolutely terrifying Nazi commander. And at one point, someone asks him to be merciful. And, you know, of course, he's... Uh, He's the furthest thing from merciful or compassionate. He doesn't have any empathy for other human beings. Uh, and he's a mystery to himself. But he hears the word merciful and he begins to play with it. Merciful. And he says his name, like, I forget what it was, but so-and-so, the merciful. 
I am so-and-so the merciful. And he begins to play at it and uh, use it as a way to inflate his self-image. Now, that's a pretty dark example of what the ego does and how it plays at things, but it is nonetheless true at the core. I told you in our last episode about my decision to shave my head. It was an act of boldness on one level and certainly attention-getting, but when I began to know a truer courage, I could see that the dramatic act was a way of avoiding the true act of courage, to show myself, to be myself, no matter what. That's something that happens on the inside, to hide no more, not on the outside. Be who you are. God will cover you. When I went back and read those words in the original letter about my spiritual name, I got chills. I realized the universe was telling me way back then (laughs) the same universal truth that it's communicating to all of us. Be who you are. Don't hide. God will cover you. No, I still didn't have the courage to be. Shaving my head was a placeholder for show. It said, I want to be authentic, but I'm not ready yet. This is all I can do right now. It proclaimed my willingness and my desire, my deep desire to be true to myself. But it was as far as I could penetrate uh, into my own bravery or courage at the time. (laughs) In the book Shambhala, The Way of the Warrior, Trungpa Rinpoche describes courage or bravery as expressing your existence directly, non-conceptually, and that the fundamental act of bravery is being without deception. He goes on to specify that deception is self-deception, doubting yourself and your fundamental goodness as a being. It's this doubt we have about ourselves that causes our greatness to die inside of us. We don't see ourselves for who we truly are. We doubt our divine origin. We're just not sure deep down that we're really worth anything. We live under a burden of unconscious shame and guilt, and life is muted. All of our senses are muted. We don't see things for the glory that they are and the aliveness that is inherent to them, intrinsic to them. We don't hear sounds or smell smells or taste tastes or experience the sensations through our senses in a way that's truly alive. And you know those moments when you have, for a brief moment, seen things clearly or truly. There seems to be an aliveness that jumps out at you that you can sense and feel. For a moment, it's like the veil just drops and then it comes back up again, right? Life is muted when we doubt deeply our divine origin. We try to stay safe. We twist and distort ourselves to fit with what we believe is expected of us. And we repress any threat to the comfort of life as it is, even when that comfort is hellish. It's what Rinpoche calls the cocoon where all you can smell is your own sweat. It's so confining, but it's familiar. That's where we live when we live with a deep doubt about ourselves. 
self-doubt leads to self-deception because you are literally deceived in yourself. You don't know who you are. So you make up a self to cover up the doubt. And self-deception leads to deceiving others. It has to. Hiding, pretending, living on the surface of life with your masks. It upholds our unspoken agreements not to go too deep, not to be too honest, not to be truly ourselves, to keep up appearances and keep things going so they don't fall apart. So that's why people don't appreciate it when you start to bring your whole self and your true self to the party, so to speak, because <laughs> it disturbs the delicate balance that we've all agreed on in an unspoken way about how we function as a family, as a couple, as a constellation where we all have our roles that we fulfill. When someone starts to go outside of that or let go of the role, it, it upsets the balance of the totality. And most people are afraid of that and they don't want it. In my second year of training at the ashram during an intensive, we had to leave on a vision quest of sorts. After the experience, once everyone was back and we were in our small groups, we met with our mentors. I was in a small group with my teacher. Each person recounted the journey that they had lived through, and my teacher interpreted and helped us understand the reflection that was being offered by the mirror of reality and helped us to synthesize the experience through symbolism and numerology. When it came to me, I recounted my journey, which was lackluster to say the least. Nothing really happened. <laughs> I was frustrated with myself and I felt like a coward, but I couldn't admit it. I merely said that I hadn't expected much, so I didn't receive much. My teacher looked at me piercingly and said unequivocally, you are in doubt. The tears began to flow again as I described the emptiness that was always with me. I don't understand, I said. When I first came here, I was so full of inspiration and courage. I broke away from myself, and now I seem to be right back where I was before, only worse. You were buoyed by the resonance of the group back then, he said, and it carried you for a while. But now you have to find the energy and inspiration inside of yourself. You can't depend on anyone else to give you that. You need to be in with both feet and don't entertain any doubt about yourself. You need to decide that you are divine and tell yourself that every day. He had me meditate right then and there on the soul star chakra, one of the higher chakras above the head. And I'm sure that he helped me activate it. I am the source, he prompted me. Remember what you are. Without the conscious connection to source, we are lost. You can believe in divinity. You can even believe in your own divinity. But if it's just in your head, that's where it stays. No matter what you say, no matter what you tell others, you're living on the surface of life. It isn't real. Doubt cripples us and keeps us living small in fear, safe in our little cocoon and betraying ourselves and others, betraying the light that we are. That was why I felt uncomfortable with my spiritual name, not because it wasn't the right one. To hold the image of myself as the peaceful warrior, 
the one whose soul is imbued with peace through fearlessness. That's the peaceful warrior. That was not possible for me at the time. I couldn't see myself that way. I didn't hold that image of myself because doubt was dominant. There was one person in my life who would use my spiritual name sometimes, and that was my cousin. In fact, he had asked for one himself after he had accompanied me for a week of awakening at the ashram, and my teacher gifted him one. It became a form of address between us when we were speaking of spiritual matters, which we often did and do. He was the only one in my family I felt could understand what it meant to have a spiritual name, even though, like me, he hadn't shared his own spiritual name with anyone else. It takes courage to step into that frequency, and yet, courage was one of my values. I had not chosen that because of my spiritual name. I had chosen it spontaneously, or maybe it had chosen me. I knew I was capable of it. And there were times in those seven years of tears that it was the only thing that got me through the despair that occasionally took over. In the period that followed the guidance I had received when I pulled the three cards, which I recounted in a previous episode, my teacher had said some things to me that were really hard to hear but that I needed to hear. He had put the reality right in front of my face, and he had given me a challenging practice to commit to to help me bring my soul back from the underworld. He had counseled me to feel all of the regret I had bottled up inside and to mourn all that I had rejected in life, in me. And for the first few weeks of my daily practice after that meeting I had with him, I ended up collapsing into a hyperventilating heap of sobs and wailing for a good 15 minutes after it was over. Everything seemed so bleak, and I felt terribly alone. I was staying in a little apartment in Carcassonne that turned out to be a haven. It was a quiet, peaceful abode with a small private garden in the back. It was totally enclosed. <laughs> well, it was cocoon-like. The place belonged to a retired lady who had posted it on Airbnb for about a minute and a half before changing her mind, and I had seen it during that minute and a half and contacted her. It was really divine timing because she never put it back on Airbnb again, and after we met the first time, she said to me, I had decided not to rent it out because I didn't want strangers in my place, but you're not a stranger. I feel like I know you, and you're the right person to stay here. She was a warm and compassionate woman, a former special needs teacher, and she would let me stay at her place when she was away, living with her partner who was in a different city. Over the years, we became friends, and I would go visit her until she left the city. I had the apartment on three different occasions when I spent time in Carcassonne over the years, and it was like a, a little cocoon where I felt safe to be miserable. <laughs> Though I did wonder what they must be thinking in the building during my fits of uncontrollable crying, which I'm sure could be heard in the stairwell. I felt like the madwoman in Jane Eyre, haunting the residents with muffled wailing night after night, morning after morning. I spent many hours on the couch in the tiny living room journaling or staring out the window and there were times that my thoughts drifted to how much easier it would be not to go on. I felt like I'd screwed this one up royally and made nothing of my life when I'd been given so much. And in the darkest pits of despair, it feels like 
an eternity of hopelessness that is inescapable. Timelessness is on both sides of the equation, whether you're in bliss or whether you're in despair. At the extremes, you transcend time. And you can transcend time in an eternity of despair, as well as an eternity of bliss. That's the law of polarity. In those moments, courage would well up from somewhere, and I would call upon God for help. The next day, I would start all over again with my practice. Here I go again. (laughs) And those were the toughest 31 minutes of the day, for sure. It was a 31-minute practice with a very challenging posture and a very challenging breath. And, you know, under any other circumstances, I would not have committed to a practice like that. I would have thought, oh, that's going to be agony. I don't want to do that. (laughs) 31 minutes a day for 90 days. But I felt in a way that my life depended on the commitment I had made to see that practice through. So I, and I, and I inherently trusted my teacher and I thought, well, if he gave me this practice to recover myself and to save myself, then it's going to work. So I forged ahead and synchronistically, the last day of the 90 days of that Kriya happened to be my birthday. I didn't realize it until I was getting close to the end of the practice, counting the days. And I thought, wow, the last day of the practice is my birthday. And it did feel like a rebirth of sorts. I turned a corner after that. Courage got me through those bottleneck moments. But true bravery, the bravery of the spiritual warrior was not yet known to me. That's the bravery it takes to stand naked on a mountaintop in the pouring rain and shout, I love my life when everything has fallen apart. That's the difference. When you're really brave, you love your broken life. You don't hate it. Earlier in life, there had been moments of radical honesty, bravery, walking away from a situation to start over, but usually only in the wake of having pulled my life down around me unconsciously by pushing things to the breaking point and forcing things to change. I would walk away from the smoking ruins, feeling real for a little while, definitely raw, but I had never consciously chosen to expose myself in my truth and damn the consequences. I was too dependent on other people's feelings, opinions, view of me. I was too afraid. It was easier to compromise myself and rationalize it in order to stay safe. Well, this is the recipe for why the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation, according to Henry David Thoreau. As the years passed, I grew stronger and shed layers of self-deception, though not all of them by any means. One year, during the International Immersion Week at the Ashram, the week during the summer when hundreds of students come from all around the world to go through an amazing uh, transformation and purification of the elements, my teacher pulled a hookum from the Sikh holy book, which is a way of asking for guidance from the universal guru. So, you know... The guru is not a person, it's a principle. Gu is darkness, ru is light. So the guru is that principle 
innate to you and innate to the universe, which brings us from darkness to light. This hukum, this guidance, was to serve as our guidance for the week. As he read it to us and later interpreted it, I was struck by the central theme of the guidance, which was around the word sukh, as in my spiritual name. By this time, I was a member of the teaching team and I had a group of students I was mentoring during the immersion week. So I was giving a lot of thought to the hukum and the guidance for the week as I held space for my students. In the context of the hukum, sukh was understood to be not only peace, but the peace that comes from surrendering to the comforting sweetness of the divine embrace. That's how I felt it. The message was that the guru was not cutting our heads off with the sword of truth. And as spiritual truth is so radical, it can often feel that way. It's unforgiving, it's implacable, right? And you're, you're, you cut off your head. <laughs> In other words, you, you cut off your, your intellect, your way of seeing things, which is habitual and limited. You have to surrender that, give that over and all the attachment that you have to it and the fear that goes with that, right? So in that week, the message was, was not that the guru was cutting off our heads with the sword of truth, but instead offering us a hug. It was about knowing and accepting that we are loved beyond measure and unconditionally accepted just as we are. There was a softness and tenderness in the energy as I held the space for my students during that week of training. I began pondering the qualities of sukh as they applied to my own path and how much I had struggled and defended against being comforted and cared for at a deep level. I didn't feel worthy somehow of the divine embrace. I hadn't allowed it. Even when it showed up as a person, something in me rejected it. And I understood that there would be no peace without letting that in. And to open to that required courage because it was really a softening to oneself and a willingness to simply be and for that beingness to be enough. During that same week, one of my fellow teachers and I were discussing the hukum when it came up that Sukh was part of my spiritual name. Oh, I didn't know you had a spiritual name, she said, looking at me kindly with her big brown eyes. I spoke it aloud to her, and she replied, Would you like us to call you Sukhbir? For some reason, the tears jumped instantly to my eyes, and I choked up. Okay, I said. <laughs> I will call you that from now on. And as she pulled me into a hug, I felt the frequency of sukh, the comforting, caring embrace of divine love that was being reflected to me by this other being. And I allowed myself to feel it and accept it. There is so much sweetness in the divine embrace, it is so exquisitely gentle and powerful at the same time. It just melts you. And there's nothing you can do. And you realize everything is okay. 
and you were already forgiven. It took me another year to find the courage to take on the name as a teacher. Back at the ashram for another training week as a member of the team, I announced to my teacher that I was taking my spiritual name. His eyes widened. Oh, what is it? (laughs) I had to laugh. I pronounced it to him, and he gazed at me for a moment. Yes, he said approvingly. It works for you. Well, congratulations, he hugged me. You know, I said, I tried this years ago, but nobody would call me by the name. I signed every email with it, and no one even asked me about it. You've never used it with me. In fact, you told me that Claire was kind of a spiritual name, so I just accepted that. He waggled his eyebrows at me. Maybe I was provoking you. He laughed and walked off, leaving me standing there. And I thought, of course. (laughs) I had to come around to this. I had to be ready to choose it and accept it and ask for it. In our group circle later that week, he thanked me as a member of the team, and I had to remind him of my new name, and in so doing, come out, as it were, with my decision to take it on. There was a joyful group exclamation, and from that moment on, I began to answer to that name at the ashram. It began to sound sweet to me, and I started to love the sound of it and feel a flutter of joy and appreciation when someone addressed me as Sukhbir. The frequency of that name has been and continues to be an expression of spiritual destiny and a light on my path as I embody it more and more, the ultimate state of peace that comes from knowing, knowing in your bones that you are loved, that you are wanted by the universe, that you have a right to live and to be just as you are with no adornment, no mask, no pretending, no compromise to the truth you stand in as you make your way on your journey. You have the right to your experiences. You have the right to your learnings and your growing, and everything is part of that. To feel the sweetness and intimacy of the divine embrace and to be that softness and that gentleness to the world is the bravery, the fearlessness of the warrior. You are not against anything. There is no battle to fight. You have conquered doubt and accepted simply the truth of your nature without shame. You're no longer embarrassed to be a human and you embrace all of yourself, faults and ego and all. And somehow that's all perfect and you can hold your head up even if your world is crashing down. I'll see you next time. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space, where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. 
I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.